Hey, thank you so much for being with us this uh, third Sunday of the Advent season. That's right. I said the Advent season. I had someone this week go, come on, why do you guys, why do you guys keep saying Advent? Why can't you just say Christmas? Okay, fine, 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 fine. Welcome to our third Sunday of the Christmas season. We're glad you're here. But I do want you to know why we say Advent, because it matters. Advent is about the coming of God among us. Advent means the coming, the arrival, the approach, the encounter, the presence. God is with us. And so we call it Advent. C.S. Lewis was right when he said the greatest miracle in all eternity was the incarnation of Christ. Every other sign, wonder, and miracle prepared for and pointed to that omega moment when Christ becomes flesh, and every sign, wonder, and word since then points back to the fact that God is with us. And so we say Advent. It's much more than merely a Christ mass, although it is a worship experience together as the people of God. It is a commemoration, contemplation, a celebration of Advent, the coming of God in Christ. Now, I'm going to let you in, because it is the Advent season, on a dirty little secret that's neither really dirty, certainly not little, and it's actually no secret whatsoever. And it goes like this. Every pastor secretly sort of wants to be the worship pastor. I mean, I hear what they just did, like with the doxology, and I'm like, that's, see, everyone's listening and paying attention and really likes them and doesn't want them to stop, and yeah, I could do that too. Well, no, it would sound like a cat in a blender if I tried to lead any sort of music. So I'm not going to do that to you because I love you. I do, however, want to walk us through just verbally one of my favorite Christmas carols. For some reason, we in the church, in the history of the church over the last couple hundred years, have gotten in the habit of singing one verse of a Christmas carol and then our overly ADD minds and brains and souls, we forget the words and we move on to the next one. And so we'll sing some song, and then we'll, we'll finish that way, and then we'll go on to another song. But these Christmas carols, these hymns, were the way that the early church, for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, equipped and educated and encouraged their people, because the vast majority of the population was illiterate and didn't have access to the written word of God. And so the leaders of the church would put these great doctrines and truths in song. They would synthesize and summarize so that it was portable and the people could remember. So there's a probably fairly familiar, well-known Christmas song that I want to read to you now. And I really want you to hear these lyrics. This is from We Three Kings. It goes like this. We three kings of Orient are, bearing gifts we traverse afar, field and fountain, moor and mountain, following yonder star. Then the chorus. O star of wonder, star of night, star with royal beauty bright, westward leading, still proceeding, guide us to, and then we usually go, (laughs) joy to the world. That's the one we know. But I want you to see these words. Guide us to thy perfect light. And then in my carol version here, I have the names of the three kings. We don't have any record whatsoever that these were their names. It's just some fun Christmas tradition. Gaspard, Melchior, and Balthazar. Probably, almost certainly, not their actual names. But the first verse goes like this. Born a king on Bethlehem's plain, Gold I bring to crown him again. 
King forever, ceasing never, over us all to reign. So the first verse proclaiming the Christ child in his regency, his kingship. Second verse from Melchior. Frankincense to offer have I. Incense owns a deity nigh. Prayer and praising all men raising. Worship him, God, on high. Gold, the substance of a king. This frankincense, the the idea that portrays deity or divinity, some connection with the divine. Third verse from Balthazar. Myrrh is mine. Its bitter perfume breathes a life of gathering gloom, sorrowing, sighing, bleeding, dying, sealed in the stone-cold tomb. Merry Christmas. And yet, we must remember, this is the great grand culmination of Advent. Fifth verse, so very rarely gets sung, but oh, it should. Glorious now, behold him arise, King and God and sacrifice. Heaven sings hallelujah, hallelujah, the earth replies. And so it is my hope and prayer that as our time together, as we walk through the text, that as heaven proclaims hallelujah, as we read that passage from Luke 2, and the angels declaring the glories of God, that the earth will also respond. There's a great old psalm in the Old Testament, Psalm 19, that talks about the heavens declare the glory of God. Their line goes out into all the earth. And the idea is that the creation itself is the cantor. In, in a Jewish worship experience, the cantor would sing a line, and the congregation was to respond and repeat the line back. And the psalmist in Psalm 19 says, the creation utters forth its line. Its line goes out into all the universe. The question that is begged is, does the creation respond? Do the people repeat the same truth back? Is there a hallelujah ringing back from those who are created in God's image? I want to read our passage for this morning, and then we're going to sit down and unpack it just a little bit. I'm in Matthew chapter 2. I'm just going to read straight through verses 1 through 12, and then we'll unpack it a bit. Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judah, or Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, the wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I, may, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. 
And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is God's word. Now, this Advent season, we've been talking about experiencing Emmanuel, and we've sort of been bouncing back and forth between the gospel of Matthew and Luke. Two Sundays ago, we were in the second half of Matthew chapter 2, and we looked at the story of Herod the Great, the king of Israel at the time. How did he experience? How did he receive Emmanuel? What did he believe? Well, he didn't. Last week, we went over to the Gospel of Luke, and we looked at the encounter of Mary as the Annunciation occurs, when the angel Gabriel says, Mary, Mary, in and through you will the creator of the cosmos incarnate. It's through you, Mary. And her response was to praise humbly, sincerely, and sweetly. This morning, we're going to look at these wise men. Next Sunday, Lord willing, our fourth Sunday of Advent, we'll look at the shepherds of Luke chapter 2. And then, Lord willing, on Christmas Eve, we'll look in John chapter 1 and see the light that has come into the world. All so that we can see how different people in Scripture experienced Emmanuel, the with us God. From Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, seven and a half centuries before first advent, Isaiah says there will be a child born, and his name will be God with us, or more precisely, the with us God. And so that is our big idea for this morning. It is our big idea for the entire advent series. God is with us. Now that ought to blow our scalps clean off our craniums. Because every other whisper of the world and the flesh and the devil is telling you and me 24-7 that he isn't. But if that's true, that God is with us, then there is no amount of bad news that can surpass that great good news. You and I must train ourselves to believe that. God is with us. Now let's look at this passage in detail a little bit further. Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Bethlehem, the house of bread, it's the granary. It's not a fancy place. There's actually two Bethlehems in ancient Israel, one down south of Jerusalem, one up in the Galilee region. He's born down in Bethlehem in the Judean hill country of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Now, this is a dicey time. There's about a trillion, trillion, trillion reasons why I'm not God, but one of them would be, this is a bad idea to me. I would not send the Messiah into the context in which Herod is reigning. Remember, Herod is the king of Israel at this time, and nobody likes Herod, including Herod. He's a very bad man, not to recount all of the story, but he got to where he was by clawing and scratching and killing and killing and killing and killing. His father had supported a man named John Harkanus to become the high priest of Israel. And they needed Rome's approval for that to happen. Now that's weird in and of itself because for thousands of years it was God who appointed the high priest. But Israel lost that right when the Roman Empire invaded. And so Rome has to bless the high priest. And so it got really crazy political. And a lot of money changed hands and a lot of heads went rolling down city streets. So their candidate, John Harkanus, gets installed as high priest. Herod marries John Harkanus' daughter, and then lo and behold, the high priest and the daughter are killed by Herod. Their sons are killed by Herod. Most of his other kids killed by Herod, half of his officers. Herod liked killing folks. And here's how he decided if you needed to die or not. If he could tell that you had a pulse, you were ready to die. 
He killed everybody. He gave strict orders that when he finally died, anybody of any wealth or affluence or means or rabbi in all Israel should be executed as well so that there would be a great mourning in Israel. Fortunately, the main guy that was going to carry out the order went, hey, wait a second, I'm kind of wealthy. We're not doing this. Stand down, everybody. And they didn't do it. Herod's a bad guy. Not only that, his father is from the lineage of Esau. His mother is from the lineage of Ishmael. So you've got an Edomite and an Ishmaelite, an Arabian, whose son is the king of Israel. He doesn't like the Jews. The Jews don't like him, but he sure does like getting paid, okay? At one point, he is made the prefect of one small little area in, in uh, Judea, one small little prefect. And he says, hey, did you say prefect of Judea? I'm pretty sure you meant prefect of the entire southern half. And Rome went, you know what, fine, good enough. You're bringing in the money, no problem. You know, I'm pretty sure you said prefect of the southern half, but I'm pretty sure what you really meant was prefect of all Israel. And they said, yeah, okay, fine, you've kept the peace, you're bringing in the money. Fine, he goes, I'm sorry, I'm pretty sure you said king of Israel. Woohoo! And he essentially crowns himself king. And Rome says, yeah, okay, fine, whatever. Keep the money coming, and you can wear that crown as much as you want. This is Herod. And it is told to him some pretty shocking news. In the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from, and then my text says the east, literally from the rising. So they come from the distant east. They came to Jerusalem. Now, just to ruin all of your nativity sets, I'm so sorry, please don't throw them in the fire. They're still of intense emotional and familial value. Don't destroy them. This is about two years after the birth of Jesus. Jesus is at least two years old. Most of our nativity sets have, you know, there's the manger and Joseph and Mary and there's some livestock and there's the angels and there's the shepherds. You need to get your wise men and you need to buy like several sets of them because there's not three. You need to have them like in another room. And then when your family comes over, they'll be like, whoa, your nativity set's in there. Why are the wise men over here? You're like, oh, they got two years to make it. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Come back in two years, they will have finally gotten there, all right? And there wasn't three We'd think maybe there was three because there were three different gifts, but this is a massive entourage. These guys were highfalutin astrologers and astronomers from Babylon. That's the term magi. We say wise men. Magi, it's a Persian or a Babylonian term, and they would have traveled with a big delegation, so certainly more than three of them. So I'd say go get a whole bunch of wise men, put them in another room, and then actually on second thought, don't explain it at all. They come and they say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Now, of all the people you don't want to ask that question to, it's Herod. But this is why we think they've got a pretty good delegation, a pretty good posse riding with them, because Herod uh, understands this is not just a whole bunch of folks I can kill right off the bat. Where is he? Not the one who will become king of the Jews one day. No, no, they ask. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. All Herod wanted was to be worshiped. So who are these guys? Was it really Gaspar, Melchior, and Balthazar? No, tradition says they're all different guys of different races from different nations. That's a fun story. Nothing in the text whatsoever. In fact, Matthew is the only one that talks about these magi that come from the rising at least two years into Jesus' life. Who are they? What's going on? Well, they're astronomers and astrologers. On the one hand, they're literally just watching the movements of the stars, but on the other hand, they're also interpreting 
what do all these things mean practically to the lives of people on the planet. But you also have to remember, these guys are from Babylon. The Babylonian Empire becomes the Persian Empire. And while the nation of Israel is in exile in that part of the world in Babylon and later Persia, all these Jewish prophets are writing to that population in exile. Guys like Isaiah, guys like Jeremiah and Ezekiel, guys like Micah, even Daniel, who is a prophet who is in Babylon and Persia. And so the thought is these guys have access to all of those texts. They probably had forefathers and forefathers who learned directly from Daniel because we know that Daniel was instructing people on how to interpret Jewish Torah. And these people understood that the nation of Israel, this people group of the Jews, was unique. Every other nation that Babylon or Persia conquered was assimilated or annihilated. They ceased to exist, but not the Jews. These little nobody from nowhere people continued to persist, and their God continued to do things that they couldn't quite explain. And so the idea is that these stargazers were fascinated by Jewish texts and their specificity and their precision. We're pretty clear that these magi even had a text from 1,500 years earlier. It's in the book of Numbers, chapter 24, verse 17, and it goes like this. There's a guy named Balaam. Now, full transparency, when I was in the seventh grade, the story of Balaam was my very favorite story in the Bible because Balaam had a talking... Donkey, yes, I matured so much since then. It's my favorite story. Balaam had a donkey that would talk, which I thought every dude needs a talking donkey. And Balaam is from Babylon. He's from the Chaldees, the same place that Abram was from. And he's a pagan, and yet he's a prophet. And somehow God works through this Gentile, pagan, prophet from the Chaldeans area, the same place Abram is from. And he's hired by the king of Moab, Balak, to curse Israel, to curse the Son of God. And every time he opens his mouth to curse Israel, he goes, you are so loved by God, may he bless you a thousand times. What? That was weird. And then he'd, okay, give me some more money. And the guy would pay him, and he'd go, okay, I'm going to try this again. I'm going to curse him. This time I got this. You are such a profiting nation. You will grow and increase your tent, and you will have bounty and prosperity. Whoa! And that just keeps happening until finally he writes down one of these prophetic oracles speaking of Israel, this Babylonian prophet from 1,500 years earlier. Numbers 24, 17. Balaam writes, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab. Now, that's a bad prophecy when the dude who's the king of Moab just paid you to write this down. Like, sorry, dude, my bad. But, yeah, he's going to come out of Israel, and he's going to crush your forehead and break down all the sons of Sheth. Now, we don't know exactly that they have that text, but it seems as though when this astrological or astronomical phenomenon occurs, they know enough about the history of Israel and Israel's texts that they act on it at great expense, at great effort, and great entourage. They set out from the east and they travel to the west. Verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. <laughs> when Herod is troubled, you're dead. Don't worry, it won't last long. When Herod gets troubled, you get dead, is how that usually works. And so all Jerusalem with him. 
Yeah, so they all, all, there's enough people in this posse of magi from the east that all of Jerusalem recognizes there's been a, a royal entrance into the courts of Herod, and he's troubled, and so all of Jerusalem is troubled because if Herod goes crazy, then Rome will go crazy. This is a dicey time. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he, Herod, inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Now, right there in your Bible, you should write the word, dude, you're the king of Israel. Of anybody, you should know this. Why? Because the scriptures were clear. When you become king of Israel, you are to write the entirety of the Old Testament in your own hand so that you know this stuff. He has no clue. He's not in any way seeking after God. He's more interested in building his own empire. Oh, I'm talking about Herod, not me. Because sometimes it feels that way. He has no idea. They told him, at least the scribes and the Pharisees knew, in Bethlehem of Judea, not Bethlehem of Galilee, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And then they're going to do a little bit of clever, creative scripturing here. They combine Micah 5.2 and 2 Samuel 5.2, and they put them together. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. They combine those two texts. Then Herod summoned the wise men and secretly ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. Hey, boys, come in here. Have some snacks. Tell me again. What, uh, what, when did you all see the star? He's trying to figure out. Was this star, uh, did it emerge in, uh, at conception, at birth? How long have you guys been traveling? How long ago did it start? He's trying to figure out the age of the child so that he can hunt him down and end this pretender, thinks this pretender. Verse 8, and he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring him, or bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Uh, that's a hard no. Herod had no interest in worshiping anything or anybody but himself. So they've been following this astronomical or astrological sign for hundreds and hundreds of miles. Lots and lots and lots of ink and very bad movies have been made trying to explain what this is. Let me just say about the star. It is not a mystery to be solved. It is a miracle to be believed. I have heard people try to make sense of Jesus' first miracle, turning water to wine at the wedding in Cana. And I've never heard anyone go, well, you know, he's probably got a couple boxes of Franzia under his tunic. And he's no one ever says that. They go, okay, it was a miracle. I get that. No one ever says, okay, well, when Jesus fed the 5,000 men and all the other thousands of women and children, he just had a whole bunch of granola and a fanny pack, you know, a holy fanny pack, and he just started. Nobody ever says that. We go, it's a miracle when he walked on water. Well, he had water wings. Nobody says that. It's a miracle. We go, yeah, Jesus did that. In the same way, this is a cosmological, phenomenological marvel. It's a miracle to be believed. Now, there's something interesting about it that we can learn more from. Verse 9, after listening to the king, they went on their way. Herod says, you, you guys go. I'll, I'll wait here. I'll, I'll be praying for you. <laughs> no, he's not doing that. And behold, as the wise men leave Jerusalem, the star is kind of there. They walk out, and they're like, Bethlehem, they said, huh? Well, where, where do we go? And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose, uh, it went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Now, that doesn't happen every day. Stars in our sky 
move almost uniformly east to west. They move across our sky because of the rotation of our earth. They move east to west. That's what stars do. That's what stars do. Stars move east to west. Unless one hangs a Louie and goes dead south out of nowhere. I mean, there it goes. It's tracking. They're seeing it. And all of a sudden it goes, and it waits on them while they're talking to Herod. And it goes, y'all ready to go? Jump in the truck. Let's go. And the star goes, and it goes south five miles. Now, that's a tip-off. What is the star? Did they actually see the star back in Babylon and Persia? And come? I think they did. Did the star somehow finish its trajectory while they were in Israel? I think it did. But now what's happening? I don't know. And nobody else does either. But I will tell you, I have a theological, biblical answer. Not a cosmological, not an astronomical answer. I have a theological answer. Way back in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel's written to the children of Israel while they are in exile in Babylon. And God pleads with the people, please, please turn your hearts back to me. I love you. No matter what else you might be thinking, please turn your hearts back to me. I love you. I'm for you. I know you. I see you. But if you don't, I will depart. I will leave the temple. I don't want to leave. And for 10 chapters in Ezekiel, God says, I'm going to leave. I don't want to, but I will leave. It takes him 10 grinding chapters to finally say, I'm departing. And the Shekinah glory of God departs the temple in the book of Ezekiel. And for 500 years, there is no presence in the temple in Israel. My sense is, from Isaiah, from Numbers, from Ezekiel, from Micah chapter 4, this star, this glory that greets them, these magi from the east, is the Shekinah, the glory, the presence of God, eagerly awaiting to return to Israel, this time in the presence of a child, in the presence of a person who is the temple of God, where he brings in and suddenly the glory, the Shekinah of God travels down five miles and hovers not just over the city square in Bethlehem, but directly over the house where Joseph and Mary and Jesus are lodged. Just exactly right there. Verse 10. This is sort of the payoff and the key of the entire passage. Verse 10. When they, the Magi, saw the star, they said, hmm, that's interesting. And then they went home. <laughs> If your translation says that, you should get a different translation. Uh, it's, it, it's, it's terrible grammar. It's bad syntax. It's, it's redundant, and it's repetitive, and it says the same thing three times. Matthew's a tax collector, and with all due respect to the chosen, he wasn't on the spectrum, okay? Matthew's a tax collector, and so he's doing the very best he can to amplify, bold, highlight, italics, underscore, smiling face, emoji, blinking text. When these learned magi from the rising, from Babylon and Persia, listen to verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That's an English translation of that's the same word three times. They like rejoiced, rejoiced, rejoiced. They like just, I mean, there was pinatas, there was Tootsie Roll, they just exploded with joy. Why? <laughs> because these pagans from the east understood that the God of the Hebrew Bible that they had studied was with them. Now that should be convicting to me and to you and to us. 
they rejoiced exceedingly with great tumultuous fervor. They had joy, do you see? Because they knew that God, that they had no access to on their own merit, but they had discovered him in Hebrew Bible, had led them to the place. And going into the house, I presume they knocked, I don't know, maybe they did. by this point, they're just so rejoicing, and there's such a ruckus outside. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. No mention of Joseph here, relax, he's still in the picture, he's not golfing. In the next paragraph, he's going to take him down to Egypt, so he's there, he just doesn't get mentioned here, that's okay. And they fell down and worshipped him. That's a tip-off. You can leave right now if you want, go downstairs on the second floor and find a two-year-old and see how worshipping that two-year-old works out for you. It's going to be weird. The two-year-old will probably receive it and then demand a whole lot from you. That's a tip-off when pagan Gentiles come and they fall down before a two-year-old and they worshiped. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. That's why we think maybe there were three of them. That's just because there's only three gifts. We know that Later, certainly Joseph and Mary will take these opulent gifts and they will use them to fund and finance their time down in Egypt. And apparently, however large this posse of magi from the east, they apparently just, you know, bunk down at Mary's house for the night. Like, you just got to be, I don't have enough sleeping bags. I don't have a coffee cake. What are we going to do? And they go, no, we're good. And they just, we're tired. And they just sat down right there because being warned in a dream, they, there's no La Quinta in Bethlehem. Now or then, being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. See, they encountered the God of the Bible, and they were changed. They had great joy. They recognized that God is with us, and it changed them. So what are we to take away here in the 21st century? This story of we three not-so-much kings from Orient are. What do we take away from this? A few quick implications. Number one, Jesus gives the gift of joy. <laughs> we just lit the joy candle for our Advent wreath this morning. These people, I don't know how many of them they, there were, they showed up to bless Jesus with some of their finest treasures. And these treasures were, in fact, symbolic of who they understood the child to be. However, when they actually understood the enormity and the centrality of what they had discovered, the baby gave them the gift of joy. We say this all the time, but not often enough. Joy is the outcome of fulfillment. These guys came and they emptied themselves of their treasures, but they themselves were fulfilled because they recognized, they understood, they believed, and they trusted that God was with them, and they were exceedingly and abundant, filled with joy. What is joy? As James already mentioned, it has to do with covenant, not with circumstance. I don't know if any of you are watching FIFA World Cup soccer. That's right, just me. I understand. It's okay. But imagine if you already knew that at the end of the tournament, you and your team was going to hoist the trophy. You already knew. You already have next week's paper. You already know. And yet the first thing that happens is you sustain a mild injury and you can't finish the first game. Joy is knowing the outcome how it's going to finish because you already have next week's paper. You already have. And so whatever circumstances occur, they don't matter. You know how this is going to end. These magi from the rising. I don't know what's going to happen to them when they go back to Persia or Babylon. They seem to not care because they are fulfilled. They have utter joy. 
I don't know what it is that you think this holiday season is going to bring you joy. Perhaps you've got a Christmas wish list. It's on Amazon. It's on Walmart. It's on Barnes & Noble, whatever. I can promise you within a matter of hours, the luster and the shine will wear off. And Jesus loves you too much to give you that gadget, that toy, that new version of whatever it is that you think is going to fulfill you. It cannot, it will not ever bring you joy. But the offer has been made by the only one that can give you joy and fulfillment, and he wants to in abundance. There's the song that we sang from Joy to the World. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. I used to think as far as the curse is found was someplace just on the southern tip of Argentina or in sub-Saharan Africa or way out in the Polynesian islands of the Pacific. No. As far as the curse is found is the space right between my ears and shoulder blades. It goes all the way deep into me, and he comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found, which brings us to that final verse of We Three Kings. Glorious now, behold him arise, King and God and sacrifice. Heaven sings hallelujah, hallelujah, the earth replies, or at least we must. Secondly, the king of the Jews is the king of the Gentiles, the magi from the rising. They understood this. What had been told seven and a half centuries before them was coming true. It's Matthew jumping off the page going, you guys, you guys, don't you see? Don't you understand that massive, huge passage from Isaiah 60? It's happening. Not how we expected. Not what and where we expected, but it's happening. So let me read this. This is from Isaiah 60. I think the Magi have access to this. I think Matthew had access to this, and I know that we have access to this. Isaiah 60. Isaiah writes, Arise, shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all together, they all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. That part doesn't seem fun to me. Like, I don't know, like rampant camel avalanche seems like a bad way to go. It's talking about all the provisions, the bounty of the world being brought in. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense. No mention of myrrh, and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. Many think, and I agree, that these magi from the east are bringing these opulent treasures as a fulfillment of Isaiah 60, as a fulfillment of Micah 4, but also a fulfillment of Revelation 22. When all the nations of the world will stream in to see the king of the Jews, who is the king of the Gentiles, and we have the opportunity, the privilege, and the prerogative of worshiping him now. Now, it's interesting. Isaiah doesn't mention myrrh in this passage, possibly because he can't have the understanding yet of that Messiah will actually die. The point is that all the Scripture came to pass, all that the Scriptures foretold happened. This Jesus is king of the world, and he comes not to destroy and pay people back for all the sinning, which is, I think, what a lot of times we just assume. But no, he comes to give great joy to the world. Third point, very quickly. Surrender your kingdom. 
I don't think those wise men from the east were kings, but they were certainly dignitaries, and they certainly had the wealth and the means to travel that far. And yet, they make fools of themselves, and they bow down, and they worship a toddler. Herod refused to do it, but Herod's problem is my problem. It's your problem. We've got things to do. We've got things to accomplish. We've got a whole lot of things we want to get done before today, before next month is out, before the new year starts. And yet, you'll never really truly have it. Look, all that Herod scraped and clawed to accomplish, and he was miserable and paranoid and alone and very, very dead. God will never give you all of that. He loves you too much or worse. He will allow it. But since Jesus is king and since he comes to give great joy, yield your program to his and give him the keys to every aspect of your life. And so very practically, this Advent season, when you find yourself welling up and you find yourself wanting to have a hard conversation in anger with your spouse, is this because of your kingdom or is this because of Jesus's? When you're tempted to do a shady business deal, whoa, whoa, is this because I'm trying to build my kingdom or Jesus's? When I'm tempted to, to bend the truth on social media about my own awesomeness, no, it happens. Trust me, I've seen it. Is this because I'm trying to still proffer my own kingdom or am I building Jesus's? I promise you, he will always support and endorse and affirm and encourage and resource his kingdom. But he loves you too much to allow you to build your own. Last point, <laughs> see for yourself. It's the Christmas season. It's December. It's Advent. See for yourself. Herod and the scribes and the scholars, all of them had the text and the announcement from the Magi from the East, but they really weren't all that interested. They were simply interested in maintaining their existing power structure. It's really tragic. Despite all the evidence to go and see, they simply did not go. Did I mention Bethlehem is five miles from Jerusalem? It's not like they had to Uber to Kentucky. It's five miles from Jerusalem. And the Magi just come from Babylon. And they said, hey, your prophecies in your book say that Messiah has come. And the star, you can't argue with that. It's just five miles away. Come on, let's go. And all the people of Israel said, nah, we'll wait here and see how this works out for us. No. See for yourself. I challenge you this Advent season to look really for yourself. What if it's all really true? How could that impact your joy? If all of your hardest questions were already answered, that's the gift that God gives. God is with us. Yes, it's been said before, but it's still true. Wise men still seek Jesus. Westward leading, still proceeding. Guide us to thy perfect light. And this is why we mentioned Psalm 19 at the beginning. I love this so much. What nature and creation began with a star and some cosmological, phenomenological, marvelous event. What creation began with a star, Scripture completed with these wild men, these wise men. Worldly wisdom said that they needed a king. Scripture told them where to find him. We all know that something has gone horribly wrong in the lives of every human being. But it is Scripture that tells us where to find the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And what they found was a Christ child that would save the world by becoming the sin of the whole world. 
And so as the Christmas carol reminds us, this Advent season, the creator of the world was laid in a manger at birth and laid in the whole world at his death so that we might have joy. God is with us. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you have not left us wanting and wondering. You have been clear in your word, in your world, and in the work of your son, Jesus. And so this Advent season, God, as we gather around all the things that feel good, all the senses, all the emotions, all the relationships, would you give us joy that we have next week's paper in hand? We know how this is going to go. Father, we know that we often get fixated on the stuff of this life, but we also understand from your word that there are worse things than death and better things than human happiness. There is life everlasting with you and with those we love. And so would you prepare our hearts to receive Christ all over again this Christmas season? (laughs) Father, I'm thankful for the potentiality that what those wise men from the rising saw was actually the glory of God returning to Israel the Shekinah glory, and that you've told us in your word that we are the bearers in the place where your Shekinah glory dwells in this world, in this age. And so would would we be available and accessible to point people to your son Jesus? Joy to the world. We thank you for loving us. We thank you for Jesus, that you are with us. We pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.